We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. The book of Acts tells the story of the expansion of the church. It starts with 120 followers of Jesus uh, in chapter 1, verse 15, and ends with thousands of people across the known world being a part of this new work of God's kingdom through the gospel of Jesus. Uh, Acts begins with Christians taking cover in an upper room. And it ends with the Apostle Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance in Rome, in the capital of the known world. In between those two points is the story of how the kingdom expands through the power of God's spirit. And for the past 1900 years, the church has often come back to look at this text to understand something about how the work of God, the mission of God, is, expands and is, and is engaged as it spreads throughout the world. And so our hope during this season of Eastertide is to spend some time with Paul on his second missionary journey, examining how, in fact, does this work go forward and expand. And obviously, to talk about the kingdom expanding or this work increasing means that at the very basic micro level, This is about the conversion of people to come under the rule and lordship of Jesus as their king. And so today, as we look at this wonderful story in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 34, and I invite you to open up in the Bible and follow along with me there, uh, we are going to consider particularly the conversion of the Philippian jailer. We'll also have in our back the back of our minds, the conversion of the slave girl and of Lydia just before our text as well. But we want to look at the conversion of the Philippian jailer and ask some questions. Uh, How did this jailer in in Philippi actually come to life? What were the dynamics that were at play in his conversion, in his coming to know Jesus? And what might that mean for the role that we play in the ongoing expansion of God's kingdom in today's world? It's a powerful story, this story, We'll make three observations this morning about how the Philippian jailer came to faith. The first is that this was by the power of God, by the power of God. There are three clear displays of God's power in this text. The first is the exorcism in verse 18, which actually brought about the conflict between Paul and the masters of this slave girl, and then between Paul and the rest of the city, which led Paul and his companions to go to jail and be in, the, be in proximity with the jailer. So that's the first act of God's power. The second one that we see is actually the earthquake in verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately the doors were all opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And the third act of God's power is actually the belief of the jailer and his household that we read about in verse 33. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. The exorcism and the earthquake are obvious signs of God's power, but I want you to understand that coming to faith, any individual coming to faith is also a sign of God's power at work. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that no one can say that Jesus is Lord 
except in the Holy Spirit. And then again, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Anytime faith occurs, it is evidence of the power of God working on a human heart. The power of God is always at work then in the conversion of people to Christ. Always. And as in this case, in the Philippian jailer's story, the power of God has often been uh, at work long before the person comes on the scene or is even introduced to a Christian. To say this, that God's power is necessary and always present, is actually at once quite liberating for those of you who are disciples of Jesus called to participate in the expansion of God's kingdom. I want to say that often when I'm talking to people ab about the Christian faith who aren't Christians, one of the, the observations that I'll make with them is, look, I, I have no power to bring this about in your life. This isn't something that I can do. And that's true if you're here as a Christian. There's nothing that we can actually do to affect the, the central work of the kingdom of God. That is God's work and God's prerogative alone. And acknowledging that is actually tremendously liberating for us in the work of Christian mission, of the mission of God. It's God's work. And then, of course, at the same time, God uses human agents and very human situations to deploy his power. I want you to observe this in these three, the uh, exorcism, the earthquake, and the coming to faith of the jailer. In the exorcism situation, this was initiated by Paul. Uh, and we would love to say, wouldn't we, that Paul looked upon this uh, oppressed slave girl, that he had compassion on her and mercy, that here was a daughter of Eve for whom Christ had died, that he longed to see her liberated and set free, but that's actually not what the text says. We shouldn't over-spiritualize this. Why does Paul engage in this exorcism? Verse 18, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the, to, the, uh, to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. He was greatly annoyed. It's like there had been this you know, annoying little noise or you know, somebody's tapping their knee and it starts to drive you nuts. You're like, just stop. This, this was going on and, and Paul just couldn't handle it anymore. He snapped and so he engaged. But God's power was deployed in that very human moment and the slave girl is liberated. The text doesn't tell us, but I think it's a fair assumption that she became a follower of Jesus because she was liberated in the name of Jesus Christ. She was set free from this oppressive spirit upon her. So God's work and power at work in and through us can actually happen and occur in times that seem most ordinary and even perhaps uh, in just very human moments. Several years ago, I was frustrated that my, my MacBook wasn't working. I was part of the keyboard, the infamous Apple keyboard problems. And so uh, after church one Sunday, I, I did not in any way, shape, or form want to go to the Apple store. But I took the MacBook to the Apple store, had no desire to be there. I was quite annoyed, quite honestly. But as I walked into the store, I just had a sense from God that, that I was supposed to be there in that moment. Um, I actually went to the Apple store on Monday, on Marathon Monday this week, which was a really bad idea on Boylston Street, I will tell you. <laughs> I think that's why they had open appointments. Um, but uh, as I walked in that day several years ago, uh, I just had the sense that I was supposed to be there. And so I tried to kind of get through my annoyance. And then I proceeded in the course of my time there to talk to two different people and actually God opened a door to have very invigorating conversations about the gospel. One was with a lapsed Catholic who was an employee at the store. 
a young man, and the other was with a young Chinese woman who had, had really uh, also an employee at the store who had no exposure to, to the Christian faith. And we engaged in a conversation about, about who Jesus was, and I invited them to, to be a part of, uh, to come to join us at church. And again, it wasn't that I had any real desire to be there. I, I didn't want to spend my Sunday afternoon on that problem. And I was definitely frustrated, but here was God working through a very broken vessel to, to demonstrate his power in the midst of a situation of annoyance. I, I, didn't, I didn't get to share the gospel with anybody on Monday, just in case you're wondering. This doesn't happen to me all the time. Uh, but, but I wonder for you this week, perhaps you can think about moments, perhaps very ordinary moments, moments where you'd rather perhaps not be in a situation where God can be at work through you to share the love of Jesus with someone. God's power is at work in a very human situation in this story. Think about the earthquake for a moment in terms of human agency. What's going on right before the earthquake? The earthquake is in verse 26. Look at verse 25. Such a, an amazing verse in our text. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They were praying. And I, I don't think that's an accident. We don't, we're not told what they were praying for and not convinced they were praying for an earthquake, but I think it's fair to at least say that uh, what Pascal said back in the 17th century, that God so dignifies humanity as to give us a share in causality. And he says that in relation to prayer, that we've been invited by God into this work of causality. And here, their prayers from a place of need and desperation, whatever their specific content of those requests were, deploy the power of God, which gets the attention of the jailer, who then comes to genuine faith. And that's the third uh, example of the, the power of God is the jailer actually coming to faith. And of course, he does so after they speak with the jailer and tell of the works of God to him, that his faith then comes to be a reality. God's power is deployed for conversion in that situation. So in the earthquake, in the exorcism, and in the, the conversion of the, in the specific moment of belief, there is human agency in situations that's at work. So while this point about the power of God in bringing about the expansion of his mission in the kingdom is liberating because we recognize our inability to do this, and it frees us up because it's liberating to, to actually genuinely love people and to set aside silly or manipulative techniques to try to to talk about the gospel. At the same time, we see that human agents and situations are deeply involved, that God deploys his power through us more often than not. And therefore, we need to ask, as we consider this first point about God's power, whether we practically and functionally believe in that power. Do we know that when we encounter people in our streets and workplaces, in the parks around the city, even when we're frustrated and annoyed that there is power at work in us and through us, real power, power that can demolish strongholds and break oppression. Paul and Silas certainly believed in that power. Think about 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It is God's power, and that power is what is necessary 
for people to come to know him and for his kingdom to expand. And we take that power out into the world as we walk and move among our city and around the globe. It's not a neutral confrontation, this business of the, the mission of God. It is a battle, and it's a battle that's not against our neighbors, but on behalf of our neighbors against the powers of darkness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And again, in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Power. Doesn't mean that we'll all do exorcisms or experience divinely initiated earthquakes that liberate our chains. But to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian, to know Christ, is to have experienced and been transformed by the power of God and to then be an agent of that power in the world in which we live. When you see people around us, some people look joyful and alive and very successful. Others may look quite visibly oppressed. The other day, Jameson and I were driving somewhere and we drove by a corner and we saw this young woman and I just commented to Jameson, I said, she looks so deeply oppressed. And some people it does just sort of wear on their face and appearance. How might we deploy this power in a world in which we are viewing people who may not yet know Jesus, I would say we do it primarily through the work of prayer, as Paul and Silas were praying in that prison cell around midnight. That we pray, and we, we pray, do we pray for those people that we see around the city, and pray for God's power to be unleashed in their lives, that they might come to know genuine life. So the first factor is God's power. The second one is the jailer was converted by the people of God. What I mean by this is that it's the witness of changed, the changed lives of God's people that leads to the conversion of others so frequently. That makes Gandhi's well-known observation so tragic. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. But that couldn't be said of Paul and his companions in Philippi. Their lives were different. And the jailer observed this in our text. What does the jailer see? Well, in verse 25, as we already saw, the prisoners were paying attention. You can assume the jailer was paying attention as well. That here are these two men at midnight, having been beaten and humiliated in the city by the magistrates in Philippi and thrown unjustly into prison. And what are they doing? They are rejoicing and singing hymns to God. They're praying to the Lord. And the jailer observes this. This isn't normal behavior. That's not what you would typically expect of people in that circumstance. And then in verse 28, what I think is the most astonishing detail of this story. When the doors were opened by the earthquake and the shackles were unfastened by the earthquake, Paul and Silas and their companions did not leave. Wouldn't most of us think this is a divinely given moment and opportunity for me to get out of harm's way? Let's go. God's opened the doors. They didn't leave. Why not? I would submit to you that it was for the life of the jailer. For the life of the jailer. Verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open... He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners 
had escaped. In this honor-shame culture, he had experienced the greatest dishonor. And the only honorable thing for him to do in this situation was what he was about to do, to take his own life. And we don't know exactly what went on in that cell when that earthquake happened. Perhaps Paul and Silas had had conversations with the jailer and had developed a relationship already. Perhaps God had clearly spoken to Paul about what to do when the earthquake happened. Perhaps Paul didn't want to leave the jail that night because he wanted to humiliate the magistrates as he does the next day by telling them you threw a Roman citizen into jail without due process. We're not told exactly. But when Paul finally speaks after the jailer draws his sword, he communicates care for the jailer. Look at verse 28. Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Your life is spared, even though our lives remain at risk. And the impact that this action has upon the jailer is great as he falls down, trembling with fear, and it leads him to this question, essentially, how do I get what you have? He's observed this transformation, these men who should be depressed and downtrodden and, 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 and just overwhelmed with sorrow. They're, they're singing hymns to God and they're praying. They didn't leave when the cell was open. They expressed care for his life when he was about to do the honorable thing to take his life. And he looks at them and he thinks, how do I get on the, in, in, on, the, on the inside of what this is that you have? Sirs, he says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to become like you? You're the ones in prison and in bondage and in chains. I'm the one in authority and in power, but I want to switch places with you. I want to become like you in your chains. Not in your chains, but in the life that you show me through your chains. It's a powerful moment. What does he see? He sees not someone who is successful according to the standards of the world, not someone who had it all together and had a great resume. These men were beaten and in prison and at risk, but it is the quality of their life which is rooted in a dependence upon God, which is what faith is most deeply about, a dependence upon God that is deeply expectant for God to act in our lives. Remember that psalm, as the watchman waits for the morning, as the watchman waits for the morning, so does my soul wait for you, Psalm 130. There's expectancy in this dependence that God will act. And there's also a jubilance over how God has already acted in our lives, even though we didn't deserve it. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive together with Christ. God, how can you be so good that you've washed and cleansed and renewed me, that you've given me an opportunity to have a meaningful life that's rooted and not blowing to and fro with the winds of the culture, but deeply grounded in a strong sense of who I am as an image bearer of you who's been rescued and restored by your grace and mercy. It's that deep rootedness. And then this expectant, jubilant dependence, there is a reorientation to the other, to the way of the cross or the way of love, which is on display here as they stay put after the earthquake opens the door. The work of God in our lives takes us off the path of selfish gain and down the road of love. And none of this depends upon us having it all together. 
It is the mark of grace, of the grace of God at work in the human heart and life, God's power at work in their lives, in the midst of weakness and need. Paul will go on to say, of course, in 2 Corinthians 10, that, well, Jesus will say to Paul that his power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, I'll boast of when I am weak because it will put the attention upon the strength and power of Christ. And when the jailer looks and sees Paul and Silas after this moment with sword drawn, he sees men who have been changed. Men who cannot be explained, but by some supernatural reality of the power of God at work in their lives. And he simply says, what do I need to do to be like you? The lives of Christians have always been used by God to bring people to genuine faith and conversion throughout history. In his book, uh, 1984, um, published in 1984, Robert Louis Wilkin, a, a scholar at UVA, a book called Christians as the Romans Saw Them, he observes that Christians led people to embrace lives of discipline and self-control, to pursue justice, to overcome the fear of death. They did achieve a way of life not inferior to that led by those who are truly philosophers. And he's quoting Galen, the second century critic there of Christianity. And then Wilkin continues, for it was through their way of life, not simply their teachings, that Christians first caught the attention of larger society. The people of God transformed is one of the greatest defenses of the Christian faith, one of the most powerful tools that God uses for the conversion of people to genuine life and true worship. One of the women who was baptized here on Easter Sunday, I had the privilege of working with her before her baptism to prepare her. And she described just how central other Christians were for her to meet them as a woman in her young 20s, to encounter Christians for the first time, to discover the joy and the peace that they carried about in their hearts and in their lives. Normal people like you and me that had an impact on her life in bringing her from death to life into a place of genuine faith. And returning to the Gandhi quote, this absence of transformation is one of the greatest stumbling blocks. And the question here I want us to wrestle with a little bit is, are we those kinds of people? Never perfect, obviously. We have so long to grow and grow. Um, but are we growing into this kind of people? So there's the power of God and the people of God. And then the third point is that people, the jailer is converted, yes, by those two dimensions, but then thirdly, by the word of God. Undone by their witness, undone by God's power, the jailer, trembling with fear, falls down and asks that question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The answer is in verse 31. Look with me at verse 31. And they said, this is so simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. I just want to say, can we not make it more complicated, please? Now, they, he probably had a lot of questions. Well, who is Jesus? What does it mean to believe in him? What really am I asking for? What is salvation? And so look at verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They engaged him, no doubt, in answering those questions and helping him to understand what it, what it meant to genuinely believe in the Lord Jesus and to find genuine salvation. They shared with him all the words of this life, as Acts 5.20 describes the Christian good news. Look back at verse 10. When Paul had the vision at night to go to Macedonia, he concludes that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This proclamation is always used by God. So faith comes from hearing, Romans 10.17, and hearing through the word of Christ. 
Or consider the conversion of Lydia right before our text. Lydia, a religious woman, praying outside the city. Paul and his companions come, and it says in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. There it is, the word of God, the gospel, at work in Lydia's conversion as well. By what means was the spirit exercised out of the slave girl? Verse 18, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, there's the word testifying to Jesus to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. People are to hear the word about Jesus, and they need to hear it from those who have been transformed by the power of God and who, who cannot help but speak what we have seen and heard, and from peoples whose lives reflect a dependence and joy and expectation upon God and a love for others, an orientation to the other. And I just ask, are, are we these people? And obviously, like, the answer for all of us is, well, not, not in the way that we would like to be. We're in a process. God is merciful and gracious to help us grow day by day from infancy to maturity. And are we in that process of growing that our lives might reflect this reality? All of these factors are at play in the conversion of the jailer. The power of God, the people of God, and the word of God. And these bring about the conversion of this man and his household. And then I want you to see this in the text. His life, too, is transformed and changed. And maybe you're here today and you're thinking, just exploring the Christian faith. I want you to know that these realities that we're looking at today are actually deeply for you and that there is an opportunity and an invitation, as Paul says to the jailer, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, to come into the inside of this great transformation of our lives that enables us in the midst of all of our circumstances, some of which we would never want to be in, to know and have a genuine connection with the God of the universe who loves us, who washes us and cleanses us, and before whom we rejoice and we pray and we worship. And you are invited into that. And what happens when the Philippian jailer is invited in? Verse 33, his life is transformed. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. This is an act of hospitality. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And look, he too is rejoicing. About to commit suicide a few minutes earlier, he's now rejoicing along with his entire household that he had believed in God. He had come into the fullness of life. He then expressed his fullness of life in an act of service and kindness and care for others, washing their wounds, putting food in front of them. This was the mark of a man who had been changed. Genuine conversion, which is what the expansion of the kingdom is about, is about the power of God, the people of God, and the word of God bringing about transformation in the lives of people like you and me. And most of you here, I trust, have known that transformation. And perhaps all we need this morning is a reminder to be open to the power of God continuing to grow us and transform us, that we might be more fit agents of his mission in this world in which, to which he has called us. And some of you are here this morning, and this may feel distant and foreign and 
somewhat obscure. And I want you to know with genuineness that we long for you, like the Philippian jailer, to encounter the power of God through the people of God and the word of God and to come to genuine life. We would love to partner along with you in that process that you too might come to have this kind of rejoicing that Paul and Silas and the jailer enjoy. Do we, do we believe in this power, in the power of this word, in God's power to transform? I pray that we do. And I trust that our outreach to the city of Boston and to the globe will be shaped and affected and changed and informed by that reality. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for your power that has impacted our lives if we are in Christ this morning. And Lord, we thank you that you are ongoing in your work of conversion. I pray that you'd do that work in the hearts of some this morning, that they would come to have a genuine faith in you, Lord Jesus, and be on the inside of this kind of rejoicing in life that the jailer noticed when he was still standing on the outside. And Lord, I pray for all of us who do know you that we would grow in our joy, in our conviction and in our faith and our our dependence upon you as we long, Lord, to bring you glory and honor. I pray this in Jesus' name.